0: In March 2019, a gunman in Christchurch, New Zealand, killed 50 people at two mosques. Along with his assault rifle, he wielded Facebook, where he live-streamed his attack. The video was viewed and copied by millions of people before Facebook could remove it and disable the guy's accounts. Afterward, Facebook announced a ban on white nationalist content on his platforms. But Hatefield content doesn't have a specific signature. There isn't some secret word you can search for to identify it all. So instead, Facebook and other social media sites rely on human beings to do that work. They have this army of people whose job it is to sit all day long and sift through posts depicting violence and pornography and child abuse and hate as they try to make the platform a bit safer for the rest of us. It's a miserable job. And in fact, some content moderators have later sued the companies they worked for, claiming the job left them with post-traumatic stress disorders. You know what's weird, though? At Facebook, this army of content moderators are not Facebook employees. These folks are contractors. And it turns out that technically, they work for Accenture, a multinational consultancy and staffing company. So what's going on here? A lot of people probably wouldn't use Facebook if it meant being subjected to the flood of awfulness the moderators are trying to filter out. So why is a function that seems so core to Facebook's business being outsourced? Welcome to the long form of ESG Now. I'm Megan Eastman, your host for this episode. Today, we're talking about work. Specifically, who works for whom, how the gig economy concept has evolved as staffing agencies have gotten into the game, and whether there might be some long-term downside risk for investors in this brave new world of contractors and temps. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. So here's how content monitoring works. Somebody posts a video on Facebook. Someone else comes across it, finds it offensive, and clicks a button to alert the company. That flags the video as offensive and pushes it to a content moderator who looks at it and decides whether it's acceptable or whether it violates Facebook's rules and has to come down. That scenario plays out millions of times every week, all ostensibly handled internally by Facebook. Except, like I said, it's all contractors dealing with this mess. They form a shadow workforce, one that works inside Facebook offices, logs onto Facebook systems, chats with Facebook employees on the company message boards. But when there's a party in the break room, they don't get invited, when it comes time to take time off, they don't get as much, pay and benefits aren't as good, they don't get the cushy perks big tech is known for. And it turns out that content monitoring isn't the only thing Facebook has contractors doing, either. Look at their job listings, and you'll find contract roles in marketing, recruiting, legal, finance, and of course engineering it isn't just a Facebook thing either. Alphabet, also known as Google, has tens of thousands of temps and contractors among its workforce. In fact, the New York Times reported earlier this year that their numbers have increased so steadily over the last decade that they now outnumber the permanent employees. As at Facebook, these contract workers do jobs that seem like core functions. They're in sales, they're in engineering, marketing, recruiting, coding. Some of them lead teams of permanent employees, even. But, like Facebook, they're not eligible for most of the company's famous perks and benefits. They sure as heck don't get stock options. They may not even get health insurance. The New York Times reported in May that this year that contractors make up a quarter to a half of tech industry workers here in the U.S., and Ernst Young has projected that around 30% of U.S. workers will be in the gig economy by next year. And it's not just a U.S. thing. I talked to Andrew Young, one of our senior analysts who happens to cover both the internet companies and the staffing agencies. Andrew's based in London, and he's got a good view of what's happening in the UK on this front.
1: There is a government agency called the Office of National Statistics, and every year they do a labor force study. Individuals calling themselves zero-hour contract workers through the 2000s have have been well under 1% of the economy. From 2013, that was up to 2% around 3% in 2017. But then in in certain industries, for example, support services industries, being cleaning services, uh, catering services, so uh, physical labor, that has risen in 2017 to around 8%. So
0: contract work arrangements seem to be somewhat less common in the UK than in the States, but clearly on the rise. And apparently so in a number of other countries also, judging by the news stories and the regulatory discussions. What this all means is that the workforce is becoming bifurcated. Like a caste system, where some people thrive in reasonably secure permanent jobs, and others move from gig to gig with a future that's clouded by uncertainty. So why is this happening? Andrew thinks, in some ways, it's a natural outgrowth of the outsourcing we've seen for many years now.
1: The trend of of moving your non or moving your uh, your labor out uh, of your company is is a modern trend. If you think about uh, famous shoe brands Nike and uh, Adidas and Reebok these companies have been outsourcing their manufacturing for some decades as well i think i would see it as an extension of uh, of outsourcing and then you know globalization and uh, internet connectivity this has sort of enabled um, this work to be done more easily i
0: think he's right about global trends making this whole thing easier and that's part of what's driving it but there are other factors too that make this appealing to the companies using contractors Maybe first and foremost, contractors are cheaper. The tech companies usually pay a big recruiter like Accenture to deal with things like pay and benefits and basic human resource complications. Contractors also offer companies flexibility. Having a lot of people who can be brought in or let go more or less whenever, without having to call it a layoff when they're given the boot, allows companies to ramp up production or back down as needed. They can bring in people with different skill sets for particular projects and then offload them afterward. And in the tech world in particular, where competition for top talent is really stiff, using cheaper contractors might also help keep some funds available to pay big bucks to the star engineers. Using a lot of contractors helps make the numbers look good for investors, too, because the official headcount and payroll are kept low. And of course, when a trend like this emerges, usually somebody can spot a business opportunity. And in this case, it looks like the human resources and employment services industry is on it. Staffing companies like Accenture, Adeco, Cognizant, and Randstad have stepped into the breach to make it easier for companies like Google and Facebook to hire contractors. But, you know, again, this has happened a little bit quietly. Andrew told me he was surprised to realize just how fast this business has been growing.
1: When you think of Accenture, you don't think of work outsourcing. You think of really high-skilled uh, consultants uh, coming into the businesses. But but actually, where they make money is, uh, is just uh, placing workers on temporary contracts. It is quite surprising to see that outsourcing work accounts for the majority of what these companies do. 45% of Accenture's revenue now comes from outsourcing work as well.
0: Okay, so companies get cheap, flexible labor and staffing agencies make money providing it. Everybody's happy, right? Well, no, not really. Aside from the whole caste system situation with its significant social implications, there are some other potential problems lack of human capital development for contractors could be one of the biggest here's Andrew again to put it into context
1: I think there, there can be longer term ramifications especially in companies reliant on uh, intellectual property creative uh, industries innovative industries these contracts maybe you could say they're more strictly defined the scope of the roles that uh, that fixed term contractors will do so that leads to or that that could lead to um, a loss of collaboration uh, with, uh, with colleagues or a, a lack of innovation. You know, just, do, just doing the job that you're asked to do rather than thinking about a better way to do it um, or, uh, or something outside of the immediate scope of what you've been asked to do.
0: There's lots of research literature out there supporting the idea that you get more productivity and innovation out of employees who feel engaged and valued. So by relying on contractors and skimping on engagement efforts, whether it's free lunches and nap pods or access to all-company meetings, companies could be missing out on an intangible human capital benefit, something that's probably hard to quantify, especially in the short term, and especially in the face of the much more obvious cost savings. And then there's the professional development angle, the time and effort companies devote to training and upskilling their employees. Contractors don't get much of this unless it's on their own time. After all, what's the point of investing and developing new skills in a worker you know is going to be somewhere else in a few months? And this is where some of the long-term risk comes in for investors. What might happen to productivity and creativity at a company that goes too far down this road for too long? What happens to the overall quality of that workforce over time? For that matter, what might happen to the whole talent pool if more and more companies rely on contractors like this? Well, it turns out we don't have to just speculate on how an entire economy might suffer under the arrangements like that, because there's a country that's already been running this particular experiment, Japan.
2: The contract worker or fixed-term uh, workers, around 2000, year 2000, there was a really, really severe period for graduate students to find a job.
0: That's Minako Takaba, who heads up our team of ESG analysts in Tokyo.
2: That was my uh, time well, well, I I'm at that, that age, so I so I I saw a lot of uh, my friend couldn't find a job after the graduations, so at that time I think uh, because of the economic bad economic situation, uh, many you know students could not find a job, so that uh, they start to their career as a uh, uh, contract workers. So a load
0: of Japanese students graduated with high hopes and expectations and then found themselves shunted into this perpetual contract worker track. The problem's been made worse in Japan because of the way employee tenures typically worked.
3: Yeah, uh, adding to Minako's comment, uh, Japanese people Do not change job so frequently.
0: That's Yuki Shibano, another one of our Whip Smart analysts based in the Japan office.
3: Once they get into one company. So it's hard to get full-time job once we cannot get into the window in the first place.
0: So putting aside the question of overwork, which can also be a serious problem in Japan, the permanent employees in Japan have it reasonably good, at least from an economic and professional development standpoint. They contribute to their company's growth, they help build their own resume, they contribute to the company's core innovation. And then there's everyone else, the contract and temporary workers that have it not so good. They move from contract to contract with few benefits, lower pay and little access to cool and sexy projects. Sound familiar? Japan has been running this scenario for a couple of decades, and the cracks are starting to show. Something's happening in Japan that's throwing the whole system into the spotlight. And this trend is raising urgent questions about the macro effects of a contract worker economy. Here's Yuki again.
3: We are facing an aging population issue, and we need to hire more diverse talents. So Japanese companies may need to change such a fixed hiring process in the future. And I uh, think due to such a uncertain employment condition or a relatively lower wage for uh, contract workers, they may hesitate to have a kid or even to have a partner. What
0: well, Yuki's saying makes sense. If you don't have money or security, you'll be far less likely to start a family than if you had, say, a permanent job and a steady income. But the problem isn't only limited to life planning. Japan's employment structure is starting to really disrupt the social fabric of Japanese society. There are more people that are now considered the working poor, those with jobs, but not jobs that can lift them out of poverty. It's gotten so bad that public officials in Japan have started to intervene. Here's Minako again to give us some on-the-ground perspective.
2: You know, people called the working poor, they have a job, but uh, their quality of life uh, never get better. So the, the regulation uh, started to treat those contract workers doing the uh, same job, same role, uh, should receive the same wage. And also uh, to secure the their job position uh, for the contract workers, the regulation started to prohibit the company to continue to keep the contract workers in the same position over three years. So they have to terminate that contract worker or they have to ask, accept those contract workers as full-time or permanent employees. So the, the regulation around the contract worker uh, is getting better and uh, the expectations are requirements to the company is getting higher.
0: So the two-tiered labor system in Japan has held people back from having children, which has exacerbated Japan's negative population growth problem. Suddenly there's a shortage of young, skilled employees. Companies are actually starting to find it difficult to fill key positions. Opening up immigration options to import these workers is becoming increasingly common. And at the same time, the Japanese government is cracking down on how companies are paying and treating their contractors, a disproportionate number of whom are women. Japan is an anomaly in some ways. It's had negative population growth and historically extremely restrictive immigration policies. But it might also be a bit of a canary in the mine, an early warning for other economies. Last November, 20,000 or so Alphabet workers walked off the job over employment issues. A lot of their focus was on Me Too, but they were also after more transparency and equality between full-time employees and and contractors. Sometime after that walkout, the company said it would start making staffing agencies provide minimum levels of pay and benefits for contractors. At Facebook, some of those contract content moderators spoke up back in May and managed to get themselves press coverage in outlets including The Washington Post. Right after that, Facebook announced wage hikes for contractors in key cities, though it didn't say how soon those would kick in. Still, it's hard to see companies backing down on this trend as long as there's a willing supply of workers. And that makes some recent activity in China look very interesting indeed. Here's Andrew again.
1: In China, by, by definition of, of being a gig economy worker, you, are, you may be excluded from a, a trade union. Research by our, our colleagues uh, in the Beijing office was uh, what they called an informal trade union. So that is where tech developers, so these are workers that are specialized in developing software products and where the skills are highly transferable from from one company to the next. We saw in uh, internet forums and they actually created a blacklist of companies that they suggest their fellow tech developers to avoid.
0: So after workers, there's regulation. In the U.S., there are already some laws on the books about when workers can can't legally be classified as contractors. The guidelines take into account things like how much workers control their own schedule, whether they own their own equipment, how much training they get, how integrated they are into the business. Workers for companies like Uber have attempted to challenge this classification in lawsuits against the companies they work for, some more successfully than others. In a major development in the U.S., a new law in California, which is expected to go into effect in January 2020, is set to require companies to classify workers as employers, not contractors, if the company has some control over how they do the work, or if the work they do is part of the company's regular business. Labor groups are pushing similar bills in a handful of other states like New York. If the California law is judged a success, it could pave the way for similar changes elsewhere. And that could be game-changing. There's a lot going on in Europe as well. Here's Andrew.
1: At least here in Europe, is uh, strengthening regulations around um, how companies can can bring in workers on fixed-term contracts, hire them easily, and fire them easily. Laws in Poland, in Italy, I think in Sweden as well, have been updated to say that you you cannot be on a fixed-term contract for longer than 18 months, for example, before the company then has to convert you to permanent. Judge ruled here in London that gig economy workers are entitled to sick pay and vacation, that sort of momentum then could move the fixed term contract towards the, the same rights as a, as a permanent contract.
0: So regulators might wield the biggest sticks when it comes to changing how companies have to operate. But we're also seeing some really interesting activities from investors as well. Over the last few years, institutional investors seem to be taking an increasing interest in how companies manage their people. Now, there's a lot investors can do behind the scenes by engaging with companies' management, and a lot of that's never visible to the public eye. So it can be hard to tell, other than anecdotally, where they're focusing. But shareholder resolutions can offer a little insight. There have been shareholder resolutions focused on some aspect of workforce relations every year for the last 20 years at U.S. companies, but they've increased a lot since 2015 if you combine that trend with a group of institutional investors that's got a few trillion dollars in assets under management that's been petitioning the SEC to acquire more human capital management disclosures from companies. And it looks a lot like investors are paying closer attention, looking for more information, and asking a lot of questions about this issue. So, does all that add up to a reversal of the trend? And is that even the right thing to be thinking about? Probably not, on both counts. The nature of work and the nature of the workforce are changing probably irrevocably. So while regulators and investors might be able to shape how that happens, and maybe put up some guardrails to protect the average worker, there's a bigger question afoot. It could be the difference between the resilience of a Best Buy and the painful decline of a Sears, or the struggles of a Yahoo and the foresight of an Amazon. It's not just whether companies keep using larger numbers of contractors that come in and out like there's a revolving door. It's not even just about whether those workers get benefits and fair pay. It's really about whether companies are thinking strategically and long-term about who gets their work done and how, whether that's today, tomorrow, or 20 years from now. And it's about how the decisions they make today might affect who's available to them down the road and what those people will or won't be capable of doing. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Megan Eastman. Thank you to Andrew Young, Minako Takaba, and Yuki Shibano for their insights, and to Matt Muscardi, Mike DiCibato, and Bentley Kaplan for their expert editorial guidance.
4: MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc's subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.